0: All right. We are now live with Ethan Newton. Ethan, thanks for coming on today.
1: No doubt. Thanks for having me.
0: So we actually played against each other um, in college. You went to OU. Um, I went to Xavier. You, were, um, What was the former head coach's last name that you played for?
1: Uh, Joe Carbone.
0: Joe Carbone. So I remember when you guys came to Xavier. Do you remember that at all? You guys came to Xavier. I do, yeah, yeah, and I, and I yeah. think we we gave him like even presented him with something or I don't even remember what the what the deal was, but that's my only really remembrance of him as a coach. But he's well, did you like playing for him at OU?
1: I did, yeah. I mean, he he challenged us. Um, you know, he wasn't easy on us uh, by by any stretch, but it was because he expected a lot of us, and um, you know, he had been there for I think 24 years, and he retired, so Whew. he knew what it took to to succeed, to play at that level. Um, he knew what you were capable of as a player and he knew what, uh, he knew what he wanted out of you. And, um, you know, the expectation level was never going to be lower from him, um, than what it was for yourself. So it kind of, kind of kept us, uh, each of the players, it kind of kept us driven and motivated to, you know, try to reach that level that he felt like we should be playing at as a team and that you should be playing at, a, uh, as an individual.
0: Now did I, Mike Schmidt was is an alumni of OU. Did he ever come back and talk to you guys at all? So he
1: didn't when I was there. Um, a few years after Rob Smith took over at Ohio, um, Rob Smith had him back and, and kind of did a, uh, a ceremony for him, and I guess he had a chance to, to speak to the current team. Uh, I believe that was – I can't remember now, but I, it was either – alumni weekend or it was like a couple weekends before and i wasn't able to make the trip so i was hoping to obviously mike schmidt hall of famer i wanted Mm -hmm. to have an opportunity to hear him speak and meet him and things like that and all the guys um said that he was great like very um very personable like you could ask him questions i think he kind of i think he kind of really enjoyed coming back and and speaking a little bit um so i didn't unfortunately but heard some pretty cool stories about when he did come back and um watched the ceremony uh on YouTube of him speaking, and um it was really cool it was good to see him back obviously on uh on the stomping grounds at at Ohio I mean he's the he's the most famous baseball alum that we have um played on the 1970 World Series team and then obviously uh major league hall of famer and all that
0: so Ohio University um I actually lived there for a summer cuz I played for the Southern Ohio Copperheads Lived in a yeah soror- yeah. Lived in a sorority house. Um, yep. I don't remember the exact street it was on, but anyway, that's a it's a really cool campus. I mean, it is. It's in the middle of nowhere, but like the actual like campus itself is awesome. Like, did you enjoy going to school it, there?
1: Oh, it was it was a blast, man. And like, especially looking back now, yeah. I didn't have so I wasn't recruited a ton out of high school, so I didn't take like. I didn't take any college visits coming out of high school. Um, I just went to uh, junior college, Allegheny College in Maryland for two years. Like that was my that was my recruiting out of high school. So I didn't get to see a ton of campuses and things like that. And then when I went to Ohio, I knew it was cool. I knew it was a, a pretty sweet campus. And like you said, it's not a whole lot around Athens, but once you pull in, like once you come across that bridge, like you are in. You are in the town, like you are. It's a it's a college town. It's awesome. But now looking back and having a better idea of like really how great that setup is, um, just makes me even more proud to to be an alum there. But it was a blast. Um, you know, my two years there were great, uh, and then I spent a summer there as well playing for Southern Ohio in the summer of two thousand eleven. Um, Wait, well, you said so you only spent you spent round. two
0: years there. So did you go to JUCO before? Yep.
1: I did. I went to Allegheny College in Maryland for two years out of high school, so I played at Allegheny. I graduated high school in 08. 08 to 2010, I was at Allegheny, and then two years at Ohio from 10 to 12.
0: Are you from Maryland?
1: Uh, no, I'm from Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, Southeast Virginia is kind of... So it's like Southampton Roads area, and the I always like I try to bring up the famous people from the area that people know a little bit better, but like the baseball players is like the Uptons, uh, David Wright um, are guys from around this area from Chesapeake um, Norfolk is right near Chesapeake and Virginia Beach. Norfolk's not as well known for baseball as the other two places um, but Southampton Roads area is also like Newport News where you know Alan Iverson, Michael Vick and some of those guys are from so that's that's the area I'm from um, born and raised here uh, and then um, went to Allegheny in uh, Western Maryland, um, for junior college out of high school and then, uh, kind of bounced around from there.
0: So you, you got done, you played and finished up your career playing at, at OU. Did you think about wanting to continue to play at all like independent baseball after that, or were you just done with, done with playing?
1: I did. Yeah. So it was a little bit, A little bit upset that, you know, nothing came um, in terms of uh, an affiliated opportunity, as most guys are. You know, you kind of expect you put together a good career. You feel like you showed what you can do and um, you hope that opportunity is going to be there. It wasn't. So I was a little bit upset. Um, Myself and another senior outfielder went to an independent league tryout um, in, uh, in Avon. And nothing came from that, had an opportunity to go to another workout. Um, but just at that point was kind of, was kind of over it was kind of just ready to, to move on. And I figured, I mean, I had no intentions of coaching, nothing like in my mind at that point, I was done with the game. Um, was just going to move back to Virginia, start to get my teaching degree and everything like that and, and start to get that all online. Um, so I had hopes of playing um, and they kind of dwindled the months after, uh, you know, I was done playing college ball. And then after that, you know, kind of, kind of put it behind me. And like I said, the, the game as a whole really kind of put it behind me at the time.
0: So you, I know you, uh, you were saying you coached JV baseball for a few years. So how did that end up happening? You just, you went back to, uh, to like be a substitute teacher and then like, how, how did you become a JV coach for a few years?
1: Exactly that. Straight up, it was to it was to make some money. Um, I was substitute teaching, uh, and I was working in uh, Family Dollar back in Norfolk. So again, um, removed from the game. The JV team at my high school, at my alma mater, Norview, uh, hadn't had a team for a couple years. Um, just not like I mentioned before. Um, not a big baseball school not a huge baseball city. Um, so just participation numbers hadn't been there. They couldn't find anybody to coach. So the opportunity came up. Um, like I said, it was a chance to just make a little bit more money, kind of stay close to the game. Um, but also the other thing it allowed me to do, which was attractive to me, um, was it gave me, my dad was actually my assistant coach. So I was the head coach for the JV team. Uh, my pops was the assistant, uh, And it just gave us a good opportunity to kind of to kind of come close through the game of baseball. So um, my dad and I had a little bit of a rocky relationship in high school. I was I was a hard headed kid. I'm sure like a lot of like a lot of relationships. You know, he pushing me and wanted me to do this. And I kind of pushed back when I went away to college. We actually got closer despite the distance. Allegheny was six hours away. OU was eight hours away. But despite that, we actually kind of got closer. So it was a really, really cool opportunity um, coming back and getting a chance to coach that JV team because we got to spend more time together. And kind of now that we had a a really, really good relationship through the game of baseball, it just gave us a chance to kind of spend more time together and uh, take advantage of that. Me being back home, back in town and again, kind of coaching baseball together was a really cool opportunity.
0: What, what did you find when you coached JV for a few years about like just actual coaching?
1: Uh, I didn't know anything like <laughs> it's 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 interesting It's and then I, I think I, I eventually kind of knew that, too. You know, you hear a lot of young coaches that say, oh, I, I thought I knew everything and I really didn't like the more I did it. And even transitioning into the college level, the more I did it, the more I, I realized that I, I didn't know much about the coaching side. Um, so I, fortunately, I guess I was able to kind of make some mistakes and kind of figure out who I wanted to be as a coach. You know, I, I think when you start, you try to either be one person or, or be a mold of a couple different people that coached you. And those few years coaching uh, high school gave me a chance to really kind of swim through all that and and figure out you know my identity as a coach and then again I mean I really had to dive in and like I felt learn from the ground level um, how how to coach how to teach baseball how to kind of learn the ins and outs of the game how to teach hitters and and all that so it gave me a chance to really dive in and, and start to start that process before I got to the college level.
0: So you weren't you weren't one of those guys as a player who was like a coach on the field. I get. I, mean, I mean, maybe that's not the best way to say it, but like someone who like thought about the game as a coach, like always diving into different mechanics and like all that sort of a thing. No, nah, I
1: think I was far from it. Um yeah. I, I. Me too. I yeah. No me too. Of, I had no intentions of coaching. Um, I mean, I was always like, admittedly. Uh, very smart when it came to the game. I was very instinctive. Um, that carried me along a, a, a ways until I developed a little more physically um, in junior college and late in high school. Um, just my my instincts and intuition were were good, but I never really looked at the game as a coach. I never put myself in the coach's shoes. I really didn't understand at all what went into it um, as a from a college coach's perspective. Um, no, I never, I never really felt like I saw the game through those, like through a coach's eyes. Um, despite having a pretty good understanding about a play, um, never really put myself in those shoes as a player.
0: So, how did you get into coaching college? Like, how how did that, how does that, how did that work? So
1: uh, fortunate again, just kind of being in the right place at the right time and timing and everything lined up so i was coaching jv and again working um at family dollar just at substitute teaching just trying to piece piece money together while i was um looking into starting the process of becoming a teacher and that first jv season that i coached i coached against uh, another coach who coached me in legion ball so when i was a high school player he coached me for a summer I really connected with him really well. His name's Larry Gordon. Um, had a really good relationship with him. When he found out that I was back in Norfolk coaching, um, he had a travel ball organization um, with another guy named Blake Dooley who were just looking for young coaches to help out with their travel ball teams. And, um, you know, it was a really exciting opportunity for me um, because I got to – now step away from Family Dollar and do something that was a little (laughs) bit more fun. Uh, But as I got in there, um, as I got in with that program, I just found that the guys that were um, more talented and and older, honestly, I enjoyed working with. So I thought, you know, man, if I enjoy working with 14-year-olds over 12-year-olds, and if I enjoy working with 16-year-olds more and 18-year-olds more than that, like, Maybe I can see if this is something that I could really potentially turn into a career. And what made sense to me the most was uh, the college level. Um, So I started just I applied to some jobs but I it was it was a long shot um, like college jobs. And when none of that worked out, I applied for some summer college coaching jobs in a couple wood bat leagues um, and was able to get one of those in the summer of 2015 and I basically approached it like, all right, I'm going to go do this. And if I feel like I'm overwhelmed, or if I don't like it, or if the older guys, I don't like working with them as much. I'll just, you know, I'll kind of head back and, and do what I was already doing. But if it's something where I really felt like I caught the bug, and I wanted to pursue it and, and kind of take a chance with it, and that's obviously what happened was the latter.
0: So I think one of the things that I <clears throat> is tough about once you get into college coaching, especially at. Well, pretty much it seems like almost at any level, unless you're, you know, a big time school is, you know, you don't get paid a whole lot. And a lot of guys give lessons and stuff like that on the side to kind of, you know, substitute their income. Did you do any of that or how were you able to kind of make it through?
1: I did. Yeah. So, again, another um, very fortunate, um, another very fortunate timing thing. I after that summer. I hit up my old junior college coach, Steve Bizarnick, and I told him I wanted to come back and help out. And he was like, "I, you know, you can come and help out, but I don't think that he really knew how serious I was about it. I think he thought I just wanted to kind of like show up and throw some BP. And I was like, coach, I'm like, I want to do this. Like, I want to make this, like, I want to try to pursue this. I said, okay, well, I don't, I'm not going to have much for you. Um, so what I was going to do was, Substitute teach up in the area during the day and then come to campus and, and um, for practice and things like that in the afternoon. What just so happened, literally, <coughs> excuse me, literally days before I was set to go up and do this substitute certification, um, uh, like training or whatever it was up there, days before Allegheny posted a job needing. Um, an English teacher. and My bachelor's degree was in English. Um, I now had a teaching certificate for K through 12. And the classes were to teach like below 101. So community college, if a, if a kid is not qualified to enter English 101 or reading 101, they go in what's called either English or reading 90 or 93. So because those are technically not college level 101 courses, I was able to teach them. I applied for the job. I went in and interviewed on the same trip that I went up to do the substitute teaching certification. Um, ended up getting that job. So for the my two years at Allegheny, I taught courses there. I taught English and reading courses. Um, my last summer there, I bounced around and, and worked some camps just to make a little bit more money and try to make some connections. We held a couple youth camps on, on campus that I, that I organized. Um, so I did things that way at Allegheny. And then at Hartford, I, I really jumped into the lessons and the camp scene even more, um, you know, during the summer and things like that to supplement the uh, the salary.
0: Yeah. So, you, I mean, you just basically just, just hustled, man. It, I mean, I
1: jumped in blindly and I don't really think it, it was, I, I tried to be as prepared as I can, but I was very fortunate with timing. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to make it happen. I knew it was something that I wanted to do and I knew it really wasn't going to be, necessarily ideal situations all the time um you know i told my mom a couple years later after i started coaching college that i had i could have had two interviews to be a high school teacher and she like couldn't she couldn't believe it like she was she wanted she wanted me to go do that because you know it's stable it's a salary it's benefits and all that but um i wanted to coach college so i just kind of figured it out and and like you said just just found a way to hustle and, and put things together, um whichever way I could to make it happen.
0: Yeah, and I think, uh you know, I've talked to a lot of different people um doing this, and I think, you know, one of the things that kind of stands out is people, some people talk about, like, getting lucky and, and, and being at the right place at the right time, and I think a lot of it, like, yeah, I, I could see where people, where you would say that, but I think you also have to have, like, your mind has to be open, right, to so many different things, like, you have to be, like, open and ready, like, and willing to pull the trigger on, on different opportunities, like when you see them. And it sounds like exactly what you did. Um, what, so how did you make the transition? Because, I mean, let, let's face it, at the end of the day, you want to, most coaches, for the most part, want to coach Division One college baseball if you want to coach, you know, uh, baseball in general a lot of times. So how did you, like, be able to pull that off and be able to get to that college, the Division One college level?
1: So, the I'm extremely thankful for my couple years at Allegheny because it really allowed me to continue to to learn and um, and grow and figure out how I wanted to teach. And our head coach at the time um, just gave me a ton of freedom, a ton of autonomy. So it allowed me to to really try to figure those things out and be hands on. Um, and with that, I just think I just think I learned and I continued. Like I. Um, you know i created a twitter just to hop on there and learn as much as i could and pull as much information as i could out of there and i kind of followed the you know the coaches at the division 1 level who i really looked up to and i don't know everything just kind of saw how they conducted themselves i tried to kind of watch how they spoke i watched videos on what they did with practice i watched videos on on hitting and i really think just trying to teach myself as much as i could and get as much knowledge as i could um but beyond that the jump to the division 1 level again it was kind of a perfect storm where i felt like after 2 years at allegheny i was ready i was ready for the time commitment i was i had more knowledge i kind of knew who i was as a coach i knew what i wanted to teach and how i wanted to teach it i mean you're all you're always learning obviously and picking up new things but i really felt like i kind of found my identity and it just so happened that um justin blood and the guys at hartford were looking for a little bit of like an outsider to come in um, somebody who, who wasn't necessarily under their coaching tree or didn't play for those guys, whether it was at UConn or Hartford. Um, And it just so happened that, uh, you know, I kind of checked all the boxes in terms of what they were looking for uh, a guy who could help with the offensive side um, coach, the defensive side. And then, you know, adding the base running element at the time was something they were looking for too. So I think it was a combination of, again, just a perfect storm of what, at the time, Justin and those guys were looking for at Hartford, um, along with what it was I had done in the previous years to just kind of prepare myself for it. And I knew, I knew it was what I wanted to do because <clears throat> I still have a, still have a document on my computer of my long-term plan where I wanted to be in year one, two, three, four, all the way through ten, after I started coaching college ball, and and that was up there. So it was something I was always kind of striving for and in any way I could like you said be prepared for the opportunity Any way I could kind of try to facilitate that I felt like I'd, I pulled the right strings in in terms of that
0: so what what is a like a day like as a college coach I mean it I, can I, be, it's, be honest like it's, I don't even actually know the more I think actually think about it, like day to day I'm sure it changes like in season off season but I guess like maybe like fall ball, for example, like maybe what a day looks like there.
1: Yeah. So it is, it's, you're right. It's pretty fluid. Um, you know, if you are slotted for weights at, at 7am, you know, your day is your day starting at, at six or whatever the case might be. Um, but yeah, I mean, typically you're, you know, you're showing up in the morning. I mean, it's, whether it's seven, eight, nine o'clock, um, going into the office, you ideally kind of already have, a general plan of of what you're going to be doing that day in practice, but maybe you're you know you're talking a little bit more about it with the coaches, um, and then you obviously have practice in the middle of the day. But beyond that, there's I mean, any it could be a number of things. It could be administrative duties in terms of like planning your trips in the spring. Um, it could be kind of looking at the budget and seeing what you need to order for apparel. Um, you know, smaller Division One schools. I think coaches are going to have a little bit more, you are going to have to wear a few different hats than some guys at the bigger schools, just in terms of personnel and, and hands on deck. Um, so it could be anywhere from making sure your guys have class schedules straight. Um, uh, as I mentioned, like the operational and, and the administrative tasks kind of vary. You've got compliance meetings. Um, you've got just general athletic department meetings and things like that, which kind of change how your day is shaped or how the week is shaped and then beyond that you know you're trying to to develop your guys so before and after practice you're you're planning things for the individual you're looking at video um you're going over measurables you're you know trying to develop these guys um not only in the couple hours that you have at practice um but the time outside of that as well and then you mentioned the fall the fall we start with an individual segment so it's Eight hours, only four of those hours can be mandatory baseball activities. And then we have a um, we have a, a team segment for six weeks where we can practice or we can have 20 hours of what's called countable athletic-related uh, activities. Um, and then we go back to that indie phase. And everybody does that a little bit different. That's kind of shiftable. Um, but we generally have the individual phase at the beginning and at the end of the fall, which is where you really get, like, small group work and, and kind of one-on-one time with some guys and then that team phase in the middle, which I mentioned can, can shift. You can kind of put that wherever you want in the, in the overall scope of your fall allows you to do a little bit more team oriented, um, things, whether it's defense, team offense, uh, and things like that.
0: So for like team lifting, like you have to be there for that too.
1: Uh,
0: we do. And, and I will, so every staff does it a little bit
1: different. Um, some guys will, some staffs will like rotate where, where a guy will go. Um, we try to be there as often as we can at, at Fairleigh Dickinson. And I like it too. Um, Cause it's just another opportunity to evaluate guys and, and see not only how guys work, but how they move. So guys that I'm working with as hitters, I want to evaluate them in the weight room and, and see how explosive they are, see what exercises they're good at, see what type of mobility they have. And a lot of times, some of the stuff that you see in the weight room um, will show itself on the field or in the box or whatever that case might be. So it's just another opportunity to evaluate um, not only your team, the the dynamic and the makeup of your team, but the individual makeup um, physically and mentally. Like, is this a guy who pushes himself? Is this a guy who knows his limits? Is this a guy who just can't wait for the 45 minute lift to be over. Um, and then again, how does this guy move and how does he operate? Um, how does he move weight? Um, how, you know, how explosive is he, uh, how flexible is he and things like that. So I think it's a really valuable time. And we try to, we try to be there, all of us, if we can, um, as often as we can.
0: So would you say for a a lot of days you're getting there at eight or nine in the morning and then you're leaving like what time, like six or seven?
1: I mean, it could it it can change. It's really not a it's really not a situation where you look at the clock and punch out. Um, you know, there's some days where we're able to get out of there at at five if if practice ends earlier in the day and we have a chance to go over it as a staff and kind of prepare for the following day. And it happens to be five o'clock, and you know it's might be time to roll out, but it might not. There might be two to three more hours worth of stuff to do. And um, you know, Rob Datoma was was very clear about that when he interviewed and and hired me um and he said the same to to steve atkins our pitching coach and it's something that i think we've all really embraced that there's no it's not really like a a situation where a certain time hits and and we're rolling out um just gonna get whatever the work is to be done on that Mm -hmm. given day um just gonna do our best to to get it done
0: so how do you fit in, like, recruiting and all and kind of what you're talking about, the day-to-day stuff? Because that's obviously such a huge part of being a college coach.
1: For sure. And so the the, the changes to the recruiting calendar the last couple of years has made it a, a little bit more, um, I guess, not, not quite as demanding. Um, just longer quiet periods and things like that where we're not allowed to go out on the road. So we can have camps on campus, but we're not allowed to be out. Um, looking at guys off site so it's made it a little bit more manageable um this is my first year being able to recruit at the division one level being a volunteer assistant at Hartford uh I could work camps and things like that um but it wasn't a situation where I could go down the street and watch a kid play at a high school game I wouldn't be allowed uh to do that so I coached you you can't do um, that you can't
0: go watch a local high school game
1: as a volunteer assistant you can't so you're only allowed 3 countable coaches that are allowed to be out recruiting on the road uh at division 1 so at at, at Fairleigh dickinson i can um at hartford i was not able to do that so if we wanted to go see a kid that maybe we had seen him play at our camp and we wanted to go check out his high school game and 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 see him play as a volunteer assistant i was not able to do that at fairly dickinson i can um but with that being said, yeah, it's that's another that's another element where um, there might be a day where um, Steve is is going to roll out at three o'clock to drive two hours and go watch a game. And, and you know, his day might not until 9, 10, 11 p.m. Uh, coming off of the road. So the recruiting definitely adds another element to it. Um, it's demanding um, making phone calls, reaching out to coaches, going to going to see games, going to watch tournaments. Um, spending a very large chunk of your day. It could be from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. at the field, um, watching games and, and um, evaluating kids, whether it's a showcase or a tournament or whatever the case might be. Um, definitely adds another element. Uh, it's busiest in the summer, um, and then it ramps back up in the spring. March 1st, we're allowed to hit the road again, so like right now we're in that quiet period of time. March 1st, we're able to go watch kids off-site, uh, again but obviously we're playing our games as well so we're trying to trying to work around that
0: so since the quieter periods are, are longer now are you spending more of that time just watching different videos of kids who are sending stuff in or like watching stuff on pbr a perfect game
1: for sure so yeah so it, it kind of we're always constantly you know tweaking our board and, and putting our plan together and evaluating our current roster and evaluating the guys that we do ha- have um, committed for our incoming classes, and you know, it's it's always it's always shiftable, it's always malleable. Where you know you think you're good at one position, and um, something happens, something you know, some sort of situation happens where um, you know now maybe you have a need at a at a certain position or whatever the case might be. So during that quiet period, we're constantly. Cons- consistently I would say consistently contacting coaches coaches are contacting us um, kids are contacting us and we kind of are just consistently tweaking our plan and and kind of going over what it is that we want to that we want to do moving forward and then when that contact period opens back up in the spring um, you know then we can kind of jump back forward and and put that into put that into action
0: can you guys I get at um at your school, actually, no. I, this is what I wanted to ask: How many times does it take for you, on average, would you say, like, to watch a kid position player and be like, okay, like I want to offer him, like I know, I now know, like he's good enough, he can play here.
1: It 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 varies from guy to guy, and it also depends kind of where you see him. So if you see a kid's uh, showcase workout and you see him take some BP and maybe some simulated innings or something like that. Um, if you, I mean, it depends if you, if you really see everything that you like from the kid and he checks all the boxes and he fits what you're looking for, um, at times you might be comfortable preparing an offer for him. But a lot of times, I, I don't know, it's good to see, it's good to see him in games. It's good to see him really compete and have to, I have to identify pitches. Um, hopefully, honestly, I, you, I think you want to see him fail a couple times because you that'll really kind of give you a look into how the kid handles failure and how he bounces back after not having success in his first two at-bats as opposed to a showcase setting where he can just hit 10 rockets in his bp round and you know maybe face a kid that's not going to end up playing college ball uh it's you know that might not be enough to to where you know what that kid can do for you or what he can be so it really depends um you know, I guess like the perfect, ideal, typical situation, which doesn't ha- happen often, is you see some video of the guy, um, you see him in a controlled setting like that, where you can kind of get some measurables, know what his sixty is, know what his exit velocity is, know, um, you know what is what his glove work is like, and how his arm functions across the diamond, and then go see him in a live setting in a in a competitive game against really good competition. Um, I think at that point, usually as a coach, you should have some f- form of comfort level in at least knowing what the kid could potentially be. Whether, you, whether or not you're ready to offer him yet or not, um, it, it really depends. Um, situation to situation, staff to staff, player to player.
0: So you, you, one of the things you just said was measurables and talking about exit velo. As you well know, like that's a <clears throat> huge thing, you know, in the showcase game right now and just in general in baseball. Like, it, Are there certain numbers that you like to see, like a range where like, okay, like this is good enough, you know what I mean? Like now let's go see him play too.
1: I, I think it depends, you know, what you're looking for. Like if you're looking for a corner guy, uh, ideally you'd like to see him be able to pop some numbers that are that are pretty good. Um, but the thing I look for, honestly, more, more than anything is, is the consistency of that, of that contact. So if there's a kid who, let's say he's a rising junior, he's going to be, he's going to be a junior in high school, um, and you're evaluating him, and, um, you know, he pops a couple, uh, off the barrel that are, that are over 90 miles per hour. That's, that's pretty impressive. But if the other ones he hits are chopped into the ground and fisted and another one is 70 and then he just whiffs on one like it's a kid that doesn't have a ton of barrel awareness and he's kind of just running into it now is that a product of trying to max out and hit the ball as hard as possible or is it really who he is as a hitter something you kind of have to have some feel and judgment for um but yeah i think if you're looking at a guy where okay we need this guy to be a bat for us Um, and he's able to consistently barrel up balls and and hit balls over 90 miles an hour. I think that's a, you know, that's, it's it's not a bad place to start, but if he's a dude that maybe he can field it and, um, and throw it really well, he's going to be a defensive guy. He runs really, really well. Um, you might be willing to sacrifice the offense a little bit more in a situation like that. And especially if you're looking for a catcher and he's a guy that you feel like can control the game defensively behind the dish. Um, that's that's gonna be, that's gonna be um, extremely important at the college level. Um, if you have a guy back there that can really control the game, um, help out the pitchers, keep the running game at bay, uh, you might be willing to sacrifice a little
0: bit of offense there. So when you were talking about like consistently like being in the 90s from like a corner guy, is that in like a BP setting?
1: So yeah, so we'll will, will test and a lot of testing that's done at, at camps and showcases is done off of the tee. But ideally, you'd like to get some readings where they're hitting a hitting a ball that's moving as well, because that's going to be a little bit truer um, to, to what's replicating the game setting. So, I think it's good to see what sort of raw power they can produce, but then you also want to see them do it in a situation that's going to be um, closer to the game setting. Uh, if you know, if a guy can just rocket balls off of the tee all day, okay, but. You know, we all not know that that's not hitting. That's just yeah. that's just swinging. So you want to see it happen in an environment that's going to be a little bit closer uh, to the game.
0: So player development is such a big, uh, big thing these days in baseball. Um, and I know a lot of different kids are, are picking colleges solely just on, you know, how well a coach can can develop them. Like, what do you do from like a player development standpoint from like uh, from just developing hitters?
1: Uh, so yeah, it's it's something that' I'm, that I'm honestly kind of kind of building as we go. Uh, this is my I was the hitting coach my second year um, at the junior college I coached at and really had a chance to dive in and, and kind of fail and mess up and you know change some things and, and really learn. And then for my two years at Hartford, um, I was helping out with hitters, helping out uh, Steve Malinowski and really learned a ton from him through those two years. And now this is really my first opportunity at the division one level to really take everything that I've kind of gathered the last few years and make it my own. Um, and Rob has been, uh, we we pretty much share the same, same vision with what we want to accomplish with our guys, but he has been incredible with um, really letting me kind of build it um, in, and not just my vision, but the vision that we share. So he's given me a ton of autonomy with that. If he has, uh anything to offer or add or to put in or make adjustments for, he's obviously gonna let me know because he is the head coach. Um but a lot of times it's uh it's very helpful and it's it's something that's gonna help me improve as a coach. With that being said, <clears throat> I think especially coming in as a first year staff, getting to know our guys and just as as people is extremely important. Um being able to talk to them and and kind of get to know who they are uh one is going to build trust and two it's going to give me an idea of okay um how am i going to talk to this guy is this a guy that i can be technical with where i can really kind of dive in and talk some of the more um smaller details of hitting or do i need to keep it simple is this a guy who maybe i need to know more importantly when to not say anything to him or when i can't speak to him so getting to know the person is 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 crucial i mean you got kids that are you have young men that are anywhere from 18 to 22 years old, there's going to be a lot of different personalities uh, that are stepping in that cage each day. So you got to know what each guy, how he functions as an individual. Um, after that, I, I like to just kind of assess them and, and not say a whole lot early on. You know, I mentioned watching how they function in the weight room. Um, if there is, again, this is just kind of me figuring out, figuring it out as, as I'm learning and, and, and coaching if there's an absence of certain forms of technology, there are other ways where you can still assess your guys and determine what type of athlete that they are. So watching them in the weight room, watching them take BP, watching them do some of their prep work, um, watching them in in the live setting and and really trying to evaluate what type of athlete he is, is, is the next phase, um, for me. And then, you know, I want to kind of determine, okay, um, the key parts of the swing, does this guy have them? Does he does he get connected early? Does he cover the the hitting zone well? Does he have good length? And um, as we start to evaluate some of that, now I'm putting together kind of an individual plan for each guy as we go throughout the fall. So watching him work and function on his own, speaking to the guy a little bit, getting an idea of, of, of where his head's at and what he's thinking when he's going through his prep work and in the box and, and swinging. Um, And then putting together an individual plan for that guy. uh, And just, uh, again, kind of really trying to figure out how each individual athlete functions uh, and and put together a plan moving forward from there.
0: What do you, what are you, you were just talking about like kind of the swing and kind of like your, your beliefs of the swing. Like, are there certain things that you like to see um, from a hitter, just pretty much from every single hitter?
1: For sure. So, some sort of, I guess, like the, the few main points, some sort of controlled gather where they're able to control a negative move and kind of get everything loaded up. Um, guys are going to move differently. Some guys can have a little bit bigger move and control that. Other guys need to be a little bit smaller. Um, but can they, do they have a controlled gather where they're not swaying over their backside? There's not a whole lot of, you know, backwards movement and then a big move to get back um, to 50 50? And then from there, are they getting to a consistent launch position? So that for me uh, is, is kind of that. It's, you know, it's referenced um, at, as a heel strike at times where that's your first move basically forward where everything kind of starts to unleash. So are you getting to a position where you can consistently fire the swing? Um, so that's the forward move basically getting back to ready to launch the swing. And then are the hips getting initiated? Do you have some sort of lower half function that allows you to the hands to come after? Because if everything kind of turns as, as, as one, it's not going to be a whole lot of adjustability of adjustability. Pretty much when you go, you go. Um, so do they have some sort of disassociation between the lower half and the upper half. After that, and this is something I, that we've we've really kind of locked in on um, this fall with our guys and you, I, I think you're starting to see it um, connect for some guys, which is really exciting um, is the is getting the back elbow slotted deep. Um, so having deep connection where the back elbow and the swing um, is getting connected to the body deep and the hands aren't jumping out front where they're kind of like punching at the bar, have a really steep attack angle out front if they're able, to get that back elbow slided deep, ideally that gets the barrel in the zone very, very early. And now you're just working on playing with the baseball and you kind of have a, a, a lot more room for air. You're not, you're not attacking a point. You're more so covering a space. Uh, and then length, conti- like being able to continue the barrel all the way through that hitting zone and not having that top hand take you out of it too quickly where you cover the front end of the zone. And then I I just like to see a guy, this is more personal thing, but I like to see some sort of athletic finish where they're not trying to finish looking a certain way. I tell our guys all the time, I don't care about how your swing looks. I care how it functions. So there's going to be times where whether it's an outside pitch inside, low, high, um, are they able to make an athletic adjustment and does the finish kind of happen organically? And I, I reference a lot of times like Adrian Beltre, finishing those swings, where he's ending up on a knee like that's ex- that's extremely athletic and extremely adjustable move and I think it's just a product of a of an efficient swing and uh, of an adjustable swing so I know that was kind of a uh, kind of a lot but that was I guess just some some basic things that I look for and there's going to be times where maybe a guy is um like maybe he's not maybe he's missing a couple of those parts and then we'll just try to address the one that we feel like Maybe it can fix the other one, or it's at least going to give him um, a little bit better chance to be successful uh, right now with where he's at.
0: So, when you're trying to fix some of these, or just help some of these guys out who maybe are a little bit inefficient, do you do that through constraints, um, you know, movement prep work, or just kind of just talking to him about it, or just all of the above?
1: Yeah. So we um, uh, we talk a lot of uh, a lot about. Uh, The feed variable and then the tool variable Uh, so the feed variable can be like angled feeds offset feeds and we'll do angled feeds um, Front toss short toss and and batting practice like full length angles Um, It might be an elevated feed where a guy that um, is really steep with his attack angle with his hands We'll try to elevate the feed. So it's coming a little bit more downhill kind of force him to to get his hands and and to get his barrel traveling on plane a little bit more Uh, and then the tool variable, um, this, what I call it is, um, the overload and underload bats, um, and, and getting guys swinging, swinging a bat that will, whether it's, um, addressing their barrel path or addressing bat speed will kind of give them a chance to be a little bit more successful, um, with that constraint. So we uh, to, I, to, I I try to set up an environment that's really going to address what it is that a guy needs to to work on, and I think our guys have really started to buy in because I'm not. Drills are important. There are some drills where you need to set the ball on the tee or throw simple straight on front toss so a guy can work on kind of addressing a specific movement pattern. Um, but uh, it's it, it shouldn't be a situation where you're looking for one drill hey, coach, do you have a drill I can work on that'll fix this? It's it's most likely not going to be one thing. It's not going to be one drill. It's going to be kind of putting you in a consistent environment where whatever the constraint is is challenging you to hopefully organically fix um, the area that maybe you're a little bit uh, deficient in. Uh, and, and I tell our guys too, I, always, I caution them, um, kind of address this early on in the fall, just beware of like, the aha moment where like, Oh, it clicks. I figured it out. Like i now I'm good because it's just, it's very difficult emotionally and mentally to ride that roller coaster where if you feel like every time you come out of the cage, it's fixed and, and it's, it's something it's, it's perfect. Now you're good. One, I'm probably not challenging you enough as a coach, but two, the next time that something goes wrong, you're going to be looking for that next thing to click you just wanna consistently put in the work and, and, and move forward and, and the whatever it is that you're working on addressing, ideally that's gonna be something that you just gain comfort with over time. I love to see things click for guys. I love when they really kind of make a connection with something that I said or something that we're doing. Um, but if it's happening every day it's probably gonna it's probably pretty artificial.
0: Man, I love that. I, I I completely agree with you on that. That's that's awesome um you were talking about kind of guys like buying in and i think this isn't talked about enough because you know we talk about mechanics we talk about approach we talk i mean not not really approach but more so mechanics than anything and how the body moves and all that other stuff but at the end of the day like if the player doesn't buy in then that it literally doesn't matter at all um and especially nowadays when you have so many guys and I don't know if you have are you are dealing with this at all, but you know guys go and see you know outside coaches as well, you know whether it be back home or just whoever it may be online um and so you're kind of having to to fight that battle it seems as well but in I know this is your 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 first year but um at this school, but like how have you been able to get those guys to buy in to what you're doing?
1: So it's it's kind of a case to case basis. I mean, you're gonna have you're gonna have some guys that they just they absolutely they they crave coaching and they crave instruction and they they crave challenges. Like uh, some of the best responses I get when we do some challenging rounds where guys don't have success is, is that they really like it. Um, so it, it's it's gonna vary case to case. You're gonna have some guys that it's evident that they they want that. You have some guys, too, where they might not give you any sort of cue whatsoever. And you're like, man, I don't know if so-and-so, like, cares what I'm saying. I don't know if he understands it or what. And it, he, he might. He's That's just kind of a, an individual personality where they don't show a lot, of, a lot of emotion or a lot of reaction to things. Um, and then I'm sure you're going to have your guys as well where it's not necessarily a fight or a struggle, but you're working a little bit harder to kind of figure out what's going to unlock that guy. Our guys this fall so far at FDU have been absolutely amazing. Um, And um, Coach DeToma would say the same thing. We've had guys early, um, out late, working on their own, asking questions, watching video on their own, um, texting us. And, and, you know, uh, I've been, it's been a blast. Like, wanting this job where I get to kind of be in charge of the day to day, um, hitting agenda with the type of of guys that we have this fall, um, it's been, it's been absolutely incredible. Um, But I guess to kind of answer your question a little bit more specifically, uh, it goes back to just speaking to that guy and getting to know him. And I like to ask him questions to hear how they respond and how they speak because a guy might speak my language. He might, he might be thinking about something completely different than what it is that I'm focusing on. And, and like, there's gonna be times where I'm gonna be like, "Did you feel that, or were you thinking this?" And they were thinking something completely different. Um, but it but it worked like so i'll I'll ask guys, I kind of I just put a a tweet out about this a couple of days ago. Um, I love coming up with new cues. I think that's the English and the communication major in me, but you have to ask guys what they think and how they feel. So asking them what they thought or what they felt when they made an adjustment where, maybe a pitch in a specific location or a certain pitch type the first few times they swung at it it was not a very good result and then they finally get that idea result where they made an adjustment okay what was it that you that you did there what you think so i like to ask them questions anytime they make adjustments on their own i like to i like to ask them and say you know if they do something that works i'll be like okay hey i like that like did you you do that yourself? Do you go back and look at old video? Like, did you have somebody else that kind of suggested that to you? And anytime it's a situation where, like you said, they come back and maybe say, oh, my, my old hitting coach or my high school coach, or so-and-so, you know, I just kind of found this on my own, suggested I do this. Uh, I think your response to that as a coach is very, very important because if you feel vulnerable and attacked with that, You're I think you're going to push that guy a little bit further away. Um, There's so many resources out there that where if you are the only resource of information for that player, he's probably not doing his due diligence on his own to become better as a player, whether it's through social media um, or video or watching pro guys or whatever. So anytime that they come back with something that didn't come from me, I'm actually pretty excited about it because one it's a chance for me to learn them a little bit better and two it's an opportunity for us to build trust to where they know that they can come to me with an idea or an adjustment or something that came from an outside source and I'm not going to attack them or shut it down
0: that's good man Uh, I I completely agree with the fact that I'm sure a lot of people do feel threatened by that a little bit especially because your job is literally the hitting coach and so if they're getting outside help or whatever but to your point again there's just there's so much information out there like it's it's a good thing that they're doing that because that means that they care and they're trying to get better and and the thing is is you know about being a college coach is there's only one hitting coach on a team like you know division one level really any of them so it's it's so hard to I can only imagine how hard it is to kind of individualize and spend you know the time each player really needs when the NCA puts that, that limitation on you. Um, Last question for you. So you talked about earlier about how, you know, you have like a a, a 10 year plan and right now you're pretty much on track with that. What does year 10 look like? So it's kind
1: of, it's, it's kind of changed a little bit. And, you know, like I've had a couple people ask me that, like a couple guys on the FDU team have actually asked me that just when we were kind of, um, you know, just, just talking after, uh, after a hitting group, the one day, like coach, what's your outlook? Would you want to be a head coach? Do you want to be division one? Like you just want to be a hitting coach. And, um, you know, I told him, I, I said at one point, I think head coach was like the goal. Um, but recently just really like, f- like really diving into the hitting side and into the, the demands of an assistant coach, um, truthfully, not to sound cliche, but I, I'm truly enjoying what I'm doing right now, so it's difficult for me to look too far ahead. Um, to, to answer your question directly, in that ten-year plan, um, it, it would have at the end it, it said it said head coach, um, not really necessarily a specific level. Um, but I wanted to get to Division One level as an assistant coach and be a hitting coach at this level. Um, wherever that kind of takes me these next few years, I, I think that map that plan you know, it, it, might shift and change a little bit. So again, not to, not to give like the conventional answer, but I, I truly am enjoying what I'm doing now and diving in more and more each day to, to what I'm doing. Um, and just really trying to, to, uh, just improve as a coach in this area as a hitting coach. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. So right now I, I can't see myself doing anything different. Um, the demands of a head coach are obviously a lot different. You're dealing with, you know, ninety percent other things outside of baseball, especially at the college level. Um, so the demands are a little bit different, and I guess that's kind of where I'm going with this response: is the demands of me right now um, is something that I really enjoy, and I- I'm challenged every day. Uh, so I think I think right now, as an assistant coach, as a hitting coach. Um, I don't really I couldn't envision myself doing anything differently in the in the near future in these next couple years. Um, five years from now, that response could change.
0: Awesome, man, Ethan. really appreciate you coming on today. Thank
1: you, Patrick. Thanks for having me.